Let's turn to our text for this morning, Jonah chapter 1. That's on page 753 if you're following along in the Pew Bibles. And if you're not, I have no idea what page it's on. We are beginning a four-part series. There's four chapters in Jonah. We're beginning a four-part series on this book uh, today. And so we'll use this uh, until we get to Lent in a couple of weeks. And this is what the text says. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break apart. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain found him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for bringing this great calamity on us. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who created the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not, let a, do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, over the past month or so, it has become apparent to me that Jonah is one of the most complex and interesting books in the Bible. Now, that may surprise some of you, right? After all, most of us know Jonah only as the Sunday school story about a wayward prophet who gets swallowed by a big fish. But once you start to actually look at this book, Once you start to examine Jonah and study it, it becomes apparent that there is a lot more to it than just what's on the surface. 
You see, when I first started planning this series a few months ago, I thought, you know, it's been a while since we've been in the Old Testament, at least for a whole series. Really not since the Psalms of Ascent series last year. We should really get back to the Old Testament and do a, a series on, on a book of, of uh, uh, sermons uh, on, on a book from the Old Testament. And uh, so I was kind of looking at the worship schedule, the worship calendar, and I, I was like, oh, we have four weeks there between uh, the end of January and the beginning of Lent towards the end of February. There's four chapters in Jonah. How about we do that? We'll do a nice, easy four-week sermon series on Jonah before we make our way into Lent. And then I actually got into this book. I started reading the commentaries, and I quickly realized, oh, this is going to be anything but a nice, easy four weeks. This is going to be hard. This is going to take some prep. This is going to take some work, and not just from me as a preacher, but from the congregation as well. You see, the more I've studied Jonah, the more I've realized this book functions like a mirror. We might think it's the story of a wayward prophet and the big fish that swallows him, but actually, it's a story about us. It's a story about God, and it's a story about what it looks like when God comes calling for us to do something, and we resist. So buckle up, folks, four weeks of Jonah. Like the story itself, it's going to be a wild ride. Now, like I said, Jonah is one of the most complex and interesting books in the Bible. And part of why it's one of the most complex and interesting books in the Bible is because it's also one of the most unique books in the Bible. For starters, Jonah is often considered one of the prophetic books, uh, part of what we call the minor prophets, which are the 13 shorter prophetic books that follow the three major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And yet Jonah isn't like the other prophetic books. First, unlike the other prophetic books, the book of Jonah doesn't tell us what Jonah prophesied. He actually doesn't speak much at all in this book. Instead, it tells us what he did. And that's a huge difference when you compare it to the other prophetic books. You see, pretty much all the other prophetic books are collections of what are called oracles. They're the sayings, the teachings, the prophecies of the prophets who gave them, but not Jonah. Unlike the other prophetic books, Jonah doesn't tell us what Jonah prophesied. Instead, it tells us what he did, where he went, and what happened to him along the way. And so that's the first thing that's unique about Jonah. It doesn't tell us what Jonah said. Instead, it tells us about Jonah himself. Which leads to the second major difference uh, with this book, which is where Jonah is sent See, most of the time in the Old Testament, God sends his prophets to his own people, to Israel or to Judah. He sent the prophets to his people to warn them of their sin, their waywardness, their rebellion against, them, uh, against him. He sends his prophets to proclaim his judgment, his punishment, the consequences for that sin. And then sometimes he would even send his prophets to comfort his people and make promises to them in the midst of that punishment and judgment. But not Jonah, at least not this time. As we'll see in a bit, God has sent Jonah to prophesy to his people Israel before, but not here, not this time. Instead, this time, God sends Jonah elsewhere. He sends him somewhere different. He sends him somewhere actually pretty far away. That's because this time, God sends Jonah to Nineveh. 
And Nineveh is not part of God's chosen people. It's not part of Israel or Judah. It's not part of God's promised land or his covenant people. Instead, it's actually part of one of their enemies. That's because Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. The very nation, the very empire, in fact, that just a few years after the events of this book is going to invade, defeat, and destroy the Israelites. And so that's the second reason Jonah is unique. While a few of the other prophets might talk about other nations, Jonah is the only one who's actually sent to a different nation. Not only is the book of Jonah unique, the prophet of Jonah is unique as well. Much of what we know about Jonah comes from this book, but there is one other passage in Scripture that mentions him. That's because in addition to the events of this book, Jonah makes a brief cameo in 2 Kings 14, 23 through 25, which says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel with, from Lebohamoth to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah pops up there in 2 Kings 14, and we learn a few things about him from that passage. First, we learn that he was a prophet for the northern kingdom of Israel. Second, we learn his ministry took place during the reign of Jeroboam II, who reigned as co-regent with his father, Jehoash, from 793 BCE to 782 BCE, and then by himself from 782 to 753 BCE. And third, and this is kind of the important part, we learn that Jonah's ministry was successful. It was successful first because he got to prophesy good news, as the author of 2 Kings says there, Jonah was able to prophesy that Israel's borders would expand, that they would grow their territory. In fact, Jonah says that they're going to expand their borders all the way to Lebohamoth, which just so you know was where Israel's borders were when their greatest king, David, was on the throne. Second, Jonah was able to prophesy that good news to the king himself. It's likely that he was a court prophet. He was part of Jeroboam II's administration, if you will. And then third, he got to see that good news come true because Jeroboam did end up expanding Israel's borders to Lebohamoth. As the author of 2 Kings says, that was in accordance with the word of the Lord. In other words, Jonah got to do a good news prophecy to the king and that good news prophecy came true. So Jonah is an Israelite prophet. He's an Israelite prophet of good news. He's an Israelite prophet of good news specifically to the king. He's an Israelite prophet to the king whose good news comes true. And in a day and an age when most of the prophets were critical of both the kings and kingdoms of Israel and Judah, that makes Jonah unique. But then comes this call. Jonah 1, 1 through 2 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. I'll suffice it to say that this is probably not the call that Jonah was expecting. As an Israelite prophet who had experienced success, Jonah probably expected more of the same. 
if and when God came calling again with another prophecy to deliver, Jonah probably expected him to call him to deliver more prophecies to Israel, more good news, more good news that would come true, some sort of prophecy that would contribute to Jonah's already sterling, successful track record as a prophet of the Lord. But this is not that call. This is different. This is odd. This is much, much harder. And so Jonah receives this call. He hears the word of the Lord. He gets up. He walks out of his house. He looks off into the distance towards Nineveh in the northeast. And then he promptly hightails it in the other direction. The text says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Again, like I said, Nineveh is in pretty much the exact opposite, or Tarshish is in pretty much the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. I like how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in her adaptation in the Jesus Storybook Bible. One ticket to not Nineveh. That's the idea here. As you can see, it's on pretty much the opposite side of the world. We don't know for sure where Tarshish was, but most commentators today believe that it was a Phoenician colony somewhere on the coast of modern-day Spain. The point is, it's in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh where Jonah's supposed to be going, and it's about as far away as possible as he could go. And yet that's where Jonah after hearing the word of the Lord, decides to head. That's where he decides to book his ticket. That's where he decides to go. He decides to head away to Tarshish. Why? That's kind of the million-dollar question with this whole book, right? Why would a prophet of God, a prophet who's been called by God, a prophet who's prophesied for God, and a prophet whose prophecies for God on his behalf have actually come true in the past, why would a prophet like that suddenly decide to disobey and run away from God? Well, truth be told, this chapter leaves that question unanswered. But if we peek ahead a bit, we get an idea. That's because in chapter 4, after Jonah does finally make it to Nineveh, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, preaches against the city, just like God told him to do, and then witnesses God holding off on his planned judgment and destruction of the Ninevites, spoiler alert, Jonah actually tells us why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. Angry over God's mercy and grace towards the Ninevites, Jonah complains in chapter 4, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's nothing if not dramatic, right? Take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. But that's why he ran away. That's why he disappeared and disobeyed God and, and headed off on that ship to Tarshish. That's why he's headed off in the exact opposite direction. Because as Jonah more or less admits there, he didn't want to see Nineveh repent. He didn't want to see God relent. He didn't want to see God not send the impending judgment and destruction he had planned for the Ninevites. This is what I tried to forestall, he says. In other words, Jonah is a prophet who is given a prophecy that he doesn't want to deliver 
not because he doesn't think it will be successful, but because he does think it will be successful, and he doesn't want it to be. Again, the question is why? Why doesn't Jonah want Nineveh to repent? Why doesn't he want God to relent? Why doesn't he want this mission that he has been given to succeed? Well, again, we can only speculate. The text doesn't tell us, but there are a couple of reasons that the commentators bring up that I think make some sense. First, it could be personal. Again, Jonah is an Israelite. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And like we said, in just a few years, Assyria is going to invade, conquer, and destroy Israel. In fact, as one commentator I read put it, by this point, Assyria was probably already sending occasional raiding parties across the border in order to harass the Israelites. And so as Jonah watched his neighbors, his friends, his family members become more and more anxious about and fearful of the Assyrians, you think he wanted to go there? You think he wanted to go minister to those people? You think he wanted to see them repent? You think he wanted to call them brother or sister as part of God's ever-expanding covenant people? No, probably not. And so that's one possibility for Jonah's resistance to this call. Jonah might not have wanted to go to Nineveh simply because they were his enemy. Or maybe it was because of his reputation. Again, like we said, Jonah seems to have had a pretty successful ministry. Uh, he's predicted some good things for Israel, and those good things have come true. So he's in a good spot in his career. He's in a good spot with Israel's king. He's in a good spot with his people. Things were probably going pretty well for Jonah. But now here comes this call. Go to Nineveh. Go to your people's enemy. Go to the king who's been attacking and raiding and oppressing you as a precursor to taking you over and try to get them to repent. Try to get them to change. Try to get them to confess their sins so that I, God, won't destroy them. What do you think Jonah's fellow Israelites are going to think of that? What do you think they'll think if Jonah goes to Nineveh and gets the Ninevites to repent? You think the other Israelites, his friends and family and neighbors, are going to be on board with that? You think they'll give him a slap on the back when he gets back to Israel and an attaboy, way to go? Or do you think they'll call him traitor, turncoat, sellout, something worse? Jonah's got a reputation to think about, and going to Nineveh is not going to help. And so that could be a reason Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to ruin his reputation. Still another possibility could be race. This one's actually pretty simple. Like we said, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. And in Jewish theology at the time, Gentiles were considered unclean, dirty, and less than Jewish people. If you were a Jew, you couldn't even sit down to eat with somebody who wasn't Jewish. And so that could be the reason Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go because he doesn't want to be with those people, those outsiders, those dirty pagan Assyrians. Or maybe he didn't want to go simply because it would be hard. Going to Tarshish is hard too, but it's not as hard. First, it's always easier to do what you want rather than what you don't want, right? We've all been there. 
We've all done that. We've all, at some point or another in our lives, worked harder to avoid something we don't really want to do simply because we don't want to do it. It's like me and dishes every day of my life, okay? And that's Jonah. Sure, he's going out of his way literally to avoid God's call on his life here, but he is going out of his way the way he wants to go. More to the point, though, even though Tarshish was farther away, it was probably easier for Jonah to get to. It's because the trip to Tarshish was a sea voyage, meaning Jonah would have simply been a passenger, a commuter. He would have been along for the ride. But Nineveh was a land journey. Not only that, it was a land journey across a desert, which means that it was a journey that would have been much more difficult for Jonah to make. So again, we don't know for sure. But those could have been some of the reasons Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh didn't want to see them repent, didn't want to see God relent of his judgment. It could have been personal for him. It could have been because of his reputation. It could have been because of race. It could have been because it would be hard. Or it could have been ease, some combination of all the above. The question for us this morning is what's our reason? Because like I said, this book isn't actually just about Jonah. It's not just about who he was, what he did, or why he resisted God's call. It's about us, too. This book is a mirror. And as such, it reflects something back to us about who we are as well. You see, Jonah isn't the only one with a calling. As Christians, we have a calling, too. Jonah wasn't the only one with a Nineveh that he was called to go and preach to. We have our own Ninevehs. And yet, like Jonah, we tend to resist obeying as well. Why? Well, again, we're going to get into some of those reasons a little later in this series, but for now, I'd like to reflect a bit together on the ones we just mentioned. You see, while Jonah is unique in the ways we've already talked about, the fact is he's far from unique in the reasons he resists God's call, because for some of us, there are reasons as well. Why don't we go on the mission God's called us to? There is a hurting, hungering world out there waiting to know God's word, waiting to hear his gospel, waiting to know his good news. The same good news, mind you, that we have already accepted for ourselves. So why don't we go? Well, again, it's some of the same reasons. For some of us, for instance, it might be personal. We simply don't like non-Christians. We don't like the things they do, the things they believe, the ways they behave and live. And so we don't want to evangelize them because evangelizing them means spending time with them. It means getting to know them. It means investing in them. And worse than that, it means letting them spend time with us, get to know us, and invest in us and our lives as well. And we don't like that. We kind of like the comfortable, predictable, insulated Christian life. You see, if we start welcoming a bunch of people who are different from us, unlike us, who don't know the rules, don't know the ways, don't know how to act and behave, it's worth asking the question, what will that do to us? What will it demand of us? What might it require? I think it's also worth wondering, what would it look like, though, if we did? What would happen if we here at Ivanrest Church all of a sudden had to welcome a bunch of people who aren't like us, what if a bunch of theys and thems became us and ours? 
What if a bunch of outsiders became our brothers, our sisters? What might that look like? What, what would that do? And not just for us here at Ivanrest, but for the kingdom of God, how many angels might have to rejoice? Makes you wonder, right? But hold on, Brandon, we've got a reputation to think about. Because we've got things pretty good here, too. After all, we're the church with all the programs. We've got the nice facility. We've got ministries and policies and procedures. We've got that pastor who preached for 10 weeks on faith and politics and somehow didn't get fired. And so if we start going on mission and we start rubbing shoulders with other kinds of people and we start bringing them in, what will people say? What will they think? Do you think they'll tell us, good job, way to go, give us a slap on the back and an attaboy? Or do you think they'll call us traitors, sellouts, turncoats, soft on sin, or something else? And then there's the race piece. I heard Tim Keller talk about this once in a lecture on evangelism. He made the point that of all the Christian traditions in the world, evangelicals, which is what we are, by the way, are the least represented in city centers. We're the tradition of Christianity with the least established churches in city centers, the least church plants in city centers, and the fewest evangelical-affiliated Christian organizations and nonprofits in city centers. And I can't help but think, he said, that at least part of the reason is because we just don't like people who look different than us. His point, in other words, is that part of why evangelical Christians today are so bad at evangelism, which is pretty ironic when you think about our name, our designation, right? is because we simply like sticking with people who look like us, act like us, talk like us, and generally come from the same ethnic and racial background as us. And yet, did you know where the CRC is actually growing the most right now? Our denomination is actually growing the most through minorities. We're growing from people who don't look like the historic CRC. We are growing through people who aren't white, aren't Dutch, and in some cases don't speak English, let alone Dutch, as their first language. In fact, I just read a banner article uh, a couple weeks ago about how 38 Venezuelan churches are currently in the process of joining the CRC. 38 Venezuelan churches. That's probably the biggest growth we've ever had in our denomination in one fell swoop. And it's people who don't look like us. They don't talk like us. They don't come from the same background as us. They're not even in the same country as us. And yet that's where we're growing. The question is, are we willing to be a part of that? Are we willing to open ourselves up to that? Are we willing to do the work that would be required for us to even be open to it? Or like Jonah, does that instead turn us off to God's grand mission? Or is it the difficulty that turns us off? Because I'll be honest here, evangelism is hard. It's scary. It's intimidating, and it used to really intimidate me, too. I'll never forget this, sitting in front of Classis, Wisconsin. The first church I served was in Wisconsin, so all the churches in, in Wisconsin are part of the same Classis. And as a new pastor coming into ministry to be ordained, you have to sit and undergo an interview from all of the churches to make sure that you are fit for ministry. And so I sat there for two and a half hours while all the delegates from Classis Wisconsin could ask me any question they wanted about the Bible, theology, pastoral ministry, all the rest. And about two hours into that interview, somebody stood up and said, Brandon, we've heard a lot about what you're good at today. 
We've heard a lot about your gifts and the things that come naturally to you in ministry. I just want to ask, what's something that you struggle with or an area of weakness for you? What's something that doesn't come naturally to you in ministry or an area where you really feel like you need to grow? It was a really good question. And I remember thinking about it for a moment or two, and then I said, evangelism. Because put me in a room like this with a couple hundred people whom I can reasonably assume believe the same sorts of things that I do, and I can talk about the gospel winsomely for a half hour or longer if you'd let me. But put me in the room with even one person where I don't know what they believe or whether or not we're on the same page or where they stand, and I get nervous. And I look back on that question now as the beginning of my interest in and passion for evangelism, for getting out there and getting to know, connecting with and rubbing shoulders with non-Christians, for talking with them, learning about them, and coming to understand what they believe and why. And you really do need to do all of that before you can start talking about what you believe and why. It takes a long time. It's a long process. But every once in a while, occasionally, you get to a point in a relationship with someone where they open up just enough or they ask and you get to share the gospel. And it's so much fun. All of this brings up the two main themes that we're going to look at in this series. And I promise I'm going to land the plane soon. Pretty much all the commentators I read said that there are two themes that dominate the book of Jonah. The first, which we're going to look at briefly in just a moment, is God's sovereignty. That's the idea that God ordains, rules, and controls all things. Put simply, there is nothing in creation that God doesn't oversee and administrate. Something that this book teaches in pretty much every word of every sentence of every paragraph on every page. The second theme, though, is evangelism. Sharing our faith, sharing the gospel, sharing what we believe as Christians. As we've already seen, this book is all about evangelism. It's all about God's mission. It's all about the gospel. And it's all about spreading the news of that mission and gospel to everyone that we can. There are other passages in scripture that I think give a good roadmap or outline for what evangelism looks like, but I actually think that this book is the best for what evangelism looks like in the world today. So, for a hint of coming attractions, let's talk briefly, and I do mean briefly, about how we see God's sovereignty at work here. This chapter opens with Jonah fleeing from God because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh and convert a bunch of dirty pagans. And yet, what happens by the end of this chapter? Jonah ends up on a boat heading for Tarshish with a bunch of dirty pagan sailors who he ends up converting. You ever notice the irony here? That's what we see. Jonah, against his will, against what he wants to do, against all his efforts and attempts to avoid it, ends up doing the exact thing he doesn't want to do. This chapter opens with Jonah running away from God and his mission, and it ends with a bunch of pagan sailors praying, praising, and offering sacrifices and vows to God. And they use the covenant name Yahweh as part of it. 
That's God's sovereignty. That's his power. That's his ability to use anything and anyone for his purposes, his will, his way of doing and accomplishing what he wants. In this chapter, we see God ordaining things every step of the way. We see him pulling the strings, arranging the details, and planning everything out just so in order to accomplish his purposes. In other words, God is in control. Like I said, that's one of the messages of this book. God in his sovereignty will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He will make it happen. He will make it work and nothing will deter him. Our excuses won't work. Our reasons won't convince him. Even our disobedience like Jonah can't ultimately stand in his way. Really the only choice that we have in the matter is this. Do we want to be used willingly or not? Do we want to be used willingly or not? Jonah ends up being used unwillingly here. Called by God, he ran away. Sent to Nineveh, he goes to Tarshish. Caught in a storm, he was hurled into the sea to save a bunch of pagans against his will. But there was another who was eventually hurled to his death. Called by God, he obeyed. Sent to earth, he went. Hurled by sin and disobedience to the cross, he died and saved a bunch of dirty pagans to us, you, me. The only difference is that unlike Jonah, every step of the way, this one went because he wanted to. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the son of God. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the message that we are called to share with all the rest of the world. Well, Jesus came for us, died and rose again for us, and has made us God's people once more, despite all the reasons he had not to. That's the message we are called to share. How will we respond to that call? we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you have placed a calling on our lives. That calling is to be your people, but it is not a calling that we keep just to ourselves. It's not a calling for our own personal benefit. It's not so that we can just be your people. It's so that we can be your people in such a way that we invite others into relationship with you to come and know you and to be your people as well. So equip and empower us, Lord God. Soften our hearts and make us your people. In your son's name, lay up our hearts.